Thanks, Benedict. You're very welcome along to episode 37 of Folklore Fragments, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin, which obviously uh, for all attending here is coming to you this evening from the beautiful surrounds of the Museum of Literature Ireland in the historic UCD Newman House on St. Stephen's Green in the heart of Dublin. And also, uh, which is very special for the first time in front of a live studio audience. So happy out. So it's a great pleasure, and thank you for being here with me this evening. Um, and if you hear small children heckling, that's my son and daughter. Father's <laughs> heckling me in the background, so excuse me, please. Uh, the aim of this podcast has been to present listeners with the richness, artistry, and depth of vision to be found in our folk traditions. And to this end, each episode to date has taken a singular fragment of that tradition as its <coughs> primary focus. Holy wells, sacred trees, rites of passage, calendar observances, the house, and so on. And this format, while useful for our purposes, is necessarily somewhat artificial as an approach, for in our own lives, tradition rarely compartmentalizes itself so neatly, instead manifesting as a tapestry of many threads and a chorus of many voices which serve to keep the past present. This evening, however, instead of focusing on one aspect of tradition, we, for the first time, dedicate our explorations to one individual. Namely, Mairead Peg Sayers, who, by her artistry and mastery as a storyteller in the oral tradition, skillfully managed to express the wisdom of the many in the wit of the few, and yet whose printed autobiographies, as Irene Lucitti notes in an article in Folklore and Modern Irish Writing, experienced a decline in reputation, suffering critical disdain and schoolyard ridicule in equal measure. Now, nearly 65 years after her death, we hope to provide a platform through which her tales might find a new audience one which it is hoped may find in her a source of inspiration and insight. And so, as Benedict was saying, it's a pleasure then for us to be able to announce that apart from um, this kind of mere podcast this evening, that our friends and colleagues at Molly, in collaboration with ourselves, will from next week, uh, 6th of July, launch an, a nine-month-long exhibition on, on Peg on Peg Sayers and the Blasco Island storytelling tradition and the context in which the priceless fieldwork collections of oral literature which are held today in the archives of the National Folklore Collection at UCD were recorded from that community by the Irish Folklore Commission. And with me this evening to explore Peg's stories, it's a huge honour to be joined by Porig O'Haley and Aileen Chiquina. Um, as Ben introduced, let's run through the introductions again. Porig is a retired senior lecturer in modern Irish at National University of Ireland, Galway, and his area of specialisation is Irish folklore, and he has published on many aspects of the topic, including religious tradition, Blasket heritage, and beliefs and practices associated with the supernatural. He's a former editor of the journal Bailitis, the Journal of the Folklore of Ireland Society. And with Buan Christ, he edited with Peg Sayers, Laurhead Lacaw, I Will Speak to You All, and Neil Derarote, both of which have been recently republished by New Island. And again, as Ben said, are available in the bookshop downstairs, which is open late tonight. So there's only about three or four copies, so you can, you can fight among yourselves. <laughs> Um, where am I? Now, recently he edited three in Old Nascola, a young teacher's account of her experience of life in the Great Blasket, which is still home to a vibrant community. Um, Eilish Nivina was born in Dublin, author of more than 30 books. Her works include The Dancers Dancing, The Shelter of Neighbours, Kalini Biafaglan and Law, and Her Lama Bach, among others. Her most recent books are 12,000 Days, a memoir, a Little Red, and other stories. And Look, It's a Woman Writer, Irish Literary Feminisms from 1970 to 2020. As well as being a writer, she's a folklore scholar and has written extensively on aspects of traditional narrative. She's been the recipient of many literary awards, most recently the Penn Award for an outstanding contribution to Irish literature. In autumn 2020, she held the Burns Scholarship at Boston College. She's a member of Aestana and president of the Folklore of Ireland Society. So uh, you're all very welcome to Blurindy, and please put your hands together for our guests. Uh, I'm just going to start a little, a brief reading from, from uh, an old woman's reflections, Machin of Shannon Knowledge, Seamus Ennis's translation. So we'll start at the end. This is from the last chapter, and this is Peg. She says, my spell on this little bench is nearly finished. It's sad and low and lonely I am to be parting with it. Long as the day is, night comes, and alas, the night is coming for me too. I am now at tight grips with the years, sorry, excuse me. I'm now at tight grips with the years and many a thing I saw. Everything I was interested in, I didn't let it astray. Someone else will have a pastime out of my work when I'm gone in the way of truth. A person here and a person there will say, maybe, who was that Peg Sayers? But poor Peg will be the length of their shout from them. 
This green bench where she used to do the studying will be a domicile for the birds of the wilderness and the little house where she used to eat and drink. It's unlikely there'll be a trace of it there. Um, Horik, I wanted to start with, with, with you this evening for a conversation. You have an intimate connection with the Blasket Island and with PEG, not just through your, your, your research that you've done and published in the area, um, but by virtue of the fact that your mother taught on the island and that you yourself met PEG shortly before her death. So I was wondering just to start if you could maybe help answer the question that Peg asked of who, who was that Peg Sayers and, and what life maybe was like on the baskets. Yeah, well, uh, Peg was uh, a very um, un-sort of likely person growing up to become the famous person that she is now becoming and being uh, more and more appreciated. Uh, she was the son of a small farmer and uh, she was uh, the youngest in the family and uh, uh, her youth was somewhat precocious in the sense that she had a great interest in storytelling and her father was a noted storyteller and he used to go visiting to other houses in the, in the vicinity and Peg would come with him, which was not a usual thing for, for a child to do really. And Peg from her very early age, if you like, she was learning her craft. She was really interested and she, uh, to, uh, she, she, she was able to, 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 to bring with her some of the, uh, of the stories and the other oral material that was being uh, given uh, as, as entertainment in, 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 in houses. Uh, Peg uh, herself then, when uh, she was about 14 years of age, because of poor family situation and sort of a, a really a, a household in which there wasn't great harmony. Her brother had married and uh, his wife wasn't very kindly disposed towards her. So uh, she went into service in a, a shop in Dingle, which is still thriving as a, a pub and a general merchant and a bit of a farm attached to it as well. And Peg, at, the early, at that early age, had to do really hard work, uh, working with animals, working, keeping the house clean, and as well as that then, she was sort of entertaining the children in the house. And she was lucky in that house in that the owner's mother was a fluent Irish speaker herself, and she was able to uh, make Peg feel at home and encourage Peg to, to tell stories and give pieces of verse, verse and songs maybe to, to the children in the house. Uh, will I continue on her, yeah, on her life story or what, <laughs> what should I do? Because <laughs> she's, she's, I mean, she's so associated with Blasket. Yeah, she so, is. She didn't, she didn't, I mean, she was born in the, on, on the mainland and she went into the island kind of hard ballot. Yeah. So I suppose even if possible to give okay, a Okay, we look then, look, uh, from her home in, in Dunquin, let's say, the Blasket Island was a daily sight for her. Uh, it was just a few miles out in the sea, a small little island. And um, when uh, she felt the need uh, to leave home permanently and go somewhere else where she could have, <coughs> excuse me, a happier life, uh, her, first, uh, uh, her first aim was to get to the United States of America. And uh, this was the dream of many young boys and girls in the area at the time. And uh, Peg was bitterly disappointed when that didn't materialize for her. Uh, there were a couple of young men in the, in, in the parish, which she, which she has said that she would be very happy to marry either of them, two of them especially. But her father couldn't afford the dowry to enable them to get married. Or, uh, and uh, then she was happy to accept uh, an offer of marriage from a Blasket Island fisherman. And uh, uh, she then subsequently went to live uh, on the island uh, a rather um, sort of daunting experience for somebody raised on the mainland, but nonetheless she settled in easily enough and uh, made friends with a number of the married women on the island especially, and gradually, 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 because of the uh, yearly 
uh, inflow of, of visitors, scholarly visitors, people who really valued what the, 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 the culture of the Blasket Islands, uh, uh, she became sort of uh, better known. People would come to her to uh, hear her tell stories and also to, to, to improve their Irish and so on. So she began to acquire sort of a profile as a storyteller. And uh, uh, this blossomed and uh, a number of scholars sort of really uh, were uh, instrumental in making Peg sort of uh, internationally known, you could say. Uh, people like, for instance, Robin Flower, uh, who was uh, curator of manuscripts in the British Museum, and uh, Kenneth Jackson, professor of Celtic Studies subsequently in, in, in Edinburgh, um, and then others like also uh, Heinrich Wagner and a number of other sort of well-known uh, scholars in the area of either uh, language or folklore. And uh, because of the uh, focus which they uh, brought to bear on Peg, Peg became uh, a, a person whose name was associated very much with being an oral tradition bearer and somebody who had unusual prowess in telling stories mm -hmm. and an unusual grasp of the, the, the tradition to which she had inherited. She knew so many different areas of, the, of, of traditional lore. She was really, really uh, very au fait with thinking of things like, for instance, medicine, cooking, and, and uh, uh, songs. She, she had many, many songs. She wasn't a great singer, but uh, she said herself she had the voice of a, of a crow. Uh, but she knew the words and so on. So uh, that may be sort of uh, some sort of an, uh, a lame introduction to who Pixar was. <laughs> no, that's great. Or is, yeah. One of the things you mentioned there, her, her ability or skill as, a, as someone who was part of an oral tradition of storytelling as well. And that's something I just wanted to ask you about because one of the, one of the Probably the, the the thing that like Peg is most associated almost as a book as opposed to a person almost. She's associated with her autobiographies, with printed works in many ways. Yeah. But she was through and through a, a storyteller. In the oh world yeah. Tradition. I mean, her uh, clearly she's best known in I suppose what you call popular modern Irish culture as for her memoir um, Peg Schelhain, which came out in 1936 first, mm. but went on the um, curriculum in secondary schools in 1962 and was on it till 1995, I think, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, was ha hated by many uh, school children. Uh, we might talk about, I mean, I mean, when I was thinking about that, 1962, what timing <laughs> from the Department of Education. Like, you, you know, Philip Larkin's little poem um, about... Um, the sexual revolution began in 1963, which was just too late for me between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP. That's when Peg is <laughs> foisted <laughs> on the teenagers mm. of Ireland who are, you know, modernizing faster than probably at any other time in our history, uh, even since then. Anyway, Fogami Chin Marahoshe, but of course, um, the, the 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 reason that she even wrote the memoir, I suppose, was that she was already established as a great storyteller, as Porik has been telling us. Um, she was she was a gifted woman. She, I, I mean, the evidence is that she um, she's in the top ten or top five of great storytellers internationally on account of simply on account of the quantity of material which she actually knew. She had an extraordinarily good memory and um, and uh, ability to retain all this all this uh, material all the stories so and she could tell them very well and she was already by 1936 she went to the Blasket in 1892 that's when she married Patsy Flint her husband um, um she was just just 19 I think 18 or 19 um, and 
she had 10 children. She was obviously busy. Three of them died in infancy. Um, but uh, from the early 1900s, um, I think the, 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 the collectors and the linguists and the scholars and the Fowlamori Gaelic and so on are beginning to, to go to the Plaskett and peg Anthemos O'Crihan, author of The Island Man, um, which, the publication of which no doubt um, had an influence on, on Peg and, and her memoir. Um, they, were, they were coming to the island. They were Peg. Peg and Thomas were known as um, particularly good people to go to if you wanted to polish up your Irish because they spoke apparently with great clarity. She has an enormous vocabulary, as I find out when I'm going to the stories and trying to translate them. I mean, there are a lot of words that I need to um, consult. Um, Deneen is the best, I think, on. Um, she, she, so, uh, she, she was famous. We, we'll talk about the collectors probably in a few mm -hmm. minutes. Porik has mentioned a few of them. But um, they, they were coming from far and wide, yes. um, from <coughs> Dublin, of course, and various parts of Ireland, but um, also from Norway, Sweden, France, Germany, naturally, and, um, and, 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 yeah. That my England, not to forget England, <laughs> Robin Flower and Kenneth Jackson, and uh, so on. So um, she she was she was um, well known and um, gifted. And now I forget what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. I'm just trying to bring out the, the the point or the sense which people mightn't necessarily understand or be aware of. Just the, the vast store of of. Folk tales, wonder tales, and like Porg had mentioned, just kind of local historical lore knowledge that that she had because she, because she's so renowned or infamous, depending on who you ask, her, about the auto. Yeah, she, she, her memoirs. Yeah, the memoir. It, 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 uh, there are a few of them, but uh, well, of course, we are folklorists and may have a certain bias, but I, I would think they are the least significant of, of that's not to den denigrate them entirely by any means, but really um, her um, her importance is as her genius was for storytelling. I mean, she's a contemporary when you think about it of James Joyce. I'd never thought about this. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I always, uh, who's you know closely associated with Molly, there um, he is. and there's she, yeah, there he is, yeah, that guy, and uh, yeah, <laughs> and yes. um, but he's young and uh, and uh, Peg. I mean, we we tend to look at Peg, and she emphasises it in in the book and so on as kind of always ancient but you know she mm. was young she was beautiful you there, there aren't that many photos of her in her youth for obvious reasons I suppose the people weren't taking photos I think um, it's Carl Wilhelm von Seedorf uh, the, the the great Swedish folklorist father of the more famous Max <laughs> who um, was a great a good photographer he took the first photos of Peg and that's in um, 19... 16 or 17, mm. well, be, be before the war, clearly, I can't remember the exact date. But um, yeah, so, uh, so, 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 so there is that. But she was, I, I think it's kind of useful to think of her in that context. We recognize Joyce, obviously, because he was a great genius, but the, the, he's working in, he's a writer, he's working in the literary tradition, he's working in the, the newer language in Ireland, um, English, he's going abroad. Peg never goes anywhere. She's in, she, her first language is Irish. She's at home on the Blasket Island. Um, the world comes to her. Joyce goes out to the world. And Peg is operating in the older tradition, which, um, as Boo Alquist, uh, our, well, my, my, my husband and uh, our friend and the great folklorist too and great expert on Peg would always say, Literature is the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> and and under the literary tradition is you know for 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 for, for, for 
centuries, um, our literature in Ireland and in the world was uh, the storytelling and the oral. So I feel Peg is um, just in a completely in that older tradition on a par almost at the level of skill and that with her um, co-evil um, hmm. there on the wall, James Came Joyce. There. Um, as though we'd planned it, just want to bring in Boo from the, the, the introduction to Larry Picot where he talks about, I suppose, the, the, not the tension necessarily, but just the dichotomy between the, the kind of the literary, the printed material, or the written material, but then the, the, the oral tradition of which she was a part. Um, she, he says here, in spite of all the, the qualities to recommend them, it might be argued that the greatest importance of the autobiographies is that they form part of the reason why more is known about Peg than almost any other Irish woman of her time. For although Peg has become so well known that many people do not regard Peg as a person but as a book, the reality is that her real importance does not lie in the printed pages and the autobiographies she dictated to her son, which is something that people aren't necessarily aware of as well. She dictated the, 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 the text as opposed to writing them but in her incredibly vast store of stories and tales. In other words, instead of being a book or even an author or writer in the usual sense of the word, her greatness lies mainly in her oral artistry. Neither were the stories in which she excelled of her own invention, nor were they mainly about herself or about recent events. They were instead traditional stories passed on for generations by word of mouth, many of them with roots hundreds or even thousands of years ago, but on which she put her own stamp, infusing them with her own personality, worldview and life experience. In quantity, quality, and variety, these tales of Peg's far surpass her autobiographical books. The manuscript material deriving from her in the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin alone occupies about 5,000 pages, to which a not inconsiderable amount of printed material from other sources is to be added. Though these collections include material other than traditional stories, it is these that form by far the greater part of them. Peg's story repertoire is often stated to have included 375 tales. And this figure may well be more or less correct, which is a slightly kind of mind-boggling concept, I think, for, for, for you know, people in a modern context to have, have memorized and inherited 375 separate different types of wonder tales, local legends, and so on, and then to be able to recite them with the skill and artistry that she did. So it's something that's, it, it's something I suppose that's worth, <coughs> worth bearing in mind. And uh, what sort of, I suppose, actually br briefly, to go to, to, you mentioned Robin Flower English. There's an account of a, a little kind of vignette that Robin Flower provides in, in his book, The Western Island, which is a beautiful book, which mm. uh, everyone should have. It, there isn't any for anyone in the audience. But, uh, it says here, he's describing her telling the story. He says, as Peg was telling this tale, I watched her in admiration of her fine, clean cut face with the dark expressive eyes that changed with the changing humors of her talk, all framed in her shawl that kept falling back from her head as she moved her arms in sweeping gestures, only to be caught and replaced above her brow with the twitch of the hand. So I suppose in thinking about the stories and tales, Porg, I wonder if you could take us through maybe what sort of tales that Peg had in her repertoire, what sort of traditional stories did she have? Yeah, okay, um, before I do that, I'd just like to come back again to what uh, Elish and, and yourself there had touched on, Johnny, yep. namely, sort of the role uh, Peg's autobiographies has played in um, presenting her persona to, 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 to um, readers and so on. And I think really that her autobiographies have done her a disservice in the sense that people have tended to view these as sort of the um, summation of Peg's prowess as, as a storyteller, or alternatively, as a, her, her, her ability, as a, her talent as a, as, as, a, as a writer, which was worse again. Uh, but uh, her real talent lay, and the reason why it is entirely proper for us to, to be to appreciate appreciative offer and to be proud of her of her of, of her talent is in her storytelling. This is this is that was really her forte. Now uh, you 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 asked me to say something about the uh, types of stories that she had. Well, as you would expect, maybe from somebody who had a repertoire of. Uh, three, uh, 375 tales. Uh, it, it covers quite a quite a gamut of storytelling. Uh, you have international folk tales. You have uh, migratory legends. You have romantic tales. 
you have religious tales, exemplary tales, and uh, you also have verse tales and tales of the supernatural. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a very rich uh, collection, if you like, of the, of, 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 of the stories available in Irish oral tradition. It's, it's, it's quite uh, comprehensive. Even she had three Fenian tales, which was quite un unusual for a woman. Uh, the women didn't generally tell uh, the Fenian stories. So uh, Peg's uh, repertoire was quite extensive, and like as as Buch said, uh, it's it's not quality is not the same as uh, quantity is not the same as quality, and in ca Peg's case that is true. Uh, we can just uh, listen to, to to her telling the stories, and you sense immediately she wants you to listen to this story. She wants you to know about what this is, what she's going to tell you, and she wants you to believe it also. Uh, and uh, uh, then her her like she, her, the, the manner in which she she deals with the with the development of the storyline. Uh, the, the attention she pays to, to detail. This is what makes her stories longer than many other tellings of the same story because she, she uh, enriches it with uh, uh, rather detailed descriptions uh, which are, are not necessary for the story, but to create the, 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 the image and the mental picture of what she's saying, this is, is, is her way of doing it. And uh, uh, she she was uh, did it very effectively. Um, there, just, there, there, there's um, no just to echo what you described. There's again in the in the intro to an old woman's reflections. It describes this this kind of a storytelling occasion in in in, in Peg Sears's home, which I just want to read through because it brings across what, what you're kind of describing there. Um, it says, I wish I had the ability to describe the scene in Peg Sayers' home in Dunclean on a winter's night when the stage was set for the Shanahi, writes Joseph O'Dall, uh, Joe Daly, who was one of the, the, the full-time collectors for the Folklore Commission, who collected from Peg from, in the, for, from the 1940s on. Uh, writes Joseph O'Dall, the evening meal was over, the day's work done, the family rosary finished. On the hearth glowed a small peat fire and on the side wall was an oil lamp so on the side wall, an oil lamp gave a dim light. Peg dominated the scene, seated on a low chair right in front of the fire. This was most unusual in the, loca in the locality. Banatee, the woman of the house, usually seated herself at the side and smoking her pipe. Behold, her brother-in-law sat with his vamps to the fire at one side of her and Mike, her son, at the other. When the visitors arrived, for all gathered to the Sayers' house when Peg was there to listen to her from supper time till midnight, the chairs were moved back and the circle increased. News was swapped, and the news often gave the lead for the night's subject. Death, fairies, weather, crops. All was grist to the mill, the sayings of the dead and the doings of the living, and Peg, as she warmed to her subject, would illustrate it richly from her repertoire of verse, proverb, and story. Often her thoughts would turn to sad topics, she might tell, for instance, of the bitter day when the body of her son Tom was brought home, his head so battered by the cruel rocks he had fallen off from the cliff that his corpse was not presentable to the public. So Peg, with breaking heart, had gathered her courage together and with motherly hands had stroked and coaxed the damaged skull into shape. It was difficult, she would say, and then, with a flick of the shawl she wore, she would invoke the name of the Blessed Virgin, saying, Let everyone carry his cross. I never heard anything so moving in my life, a Kerry man confessed to me, as Peg Sayers reciting the lament of the Virgin Mary for her son, her face and voice getting more and more sorrowful. I came out of the house and I didn't know where I was. Great artist and wise woman that she was, Peg would at once switch from gravity to gaiety, for she was a light-hearted woman and her changes of mood and face were like the changes of running water. As she talked, her hands would be working too. A little clap of the palms to cap a phrase, a flash of the thumb over her shoulder to mark a mystery, a hand hushed to her mouth for mischief or whispered secrecy. So it gives, I suppose, a certain impression of, um, of a, a living tradition of which she was very much not just a part, but a kind of, I suppose, excelled in the, in the, in the high artistry of. Um, and so again, it's just important to bear that, that, that oral tradition in mind when we're, when we're thinking about it. Um, and to move maybe from, from, I suppose, from what, what Joe Daly describes, 
Eilish, I wondered if you could talk a little about her, her audience. Like, who, who is she telling these, these stories to? Um, well, um, I think she had three kinds of audiences. Um, she told scary stories to children. I think Pori writes about that, <laughs> ghost stories and that kind of thing. Um, and she told scary stories to grown-ups as well. Some of them are quite full of bloodshed and violence and uh, so on. But um, then... She, then she told them, of course, to the collectors and the scholars and the linguists and these people who were coming to the island um, and to Thun Queen, I guess, later. Um, Joe jo Daly was collected almost exclusively in Dunquin from, um, from Peg and Dunquin from 1942 when Peg moved over back to Bolivicora, where she was from, on the mainland and... Um, and, and Joe Daly, collector for, for the Irish Folklore Commission, was working, was, was also in Dune Queen. He visited Peg 275 times <laughs> during the, uh, about 10 years he was working. Um, so um, there were those people and then the community. And I mean, Joe is describing a situation there where he was probably collecting from her. But the neighbours all gathered in to hear the stories. And I imagine that happened a lot on the island as well um, with the um, earlier, you know, collectors, Robin Flower and um, uh, Kenneth Jackson and um, so on, Mary Louise Chestet, um, all the people who came to her. I think that's very interesting. The, the tradition was still there, the real you know, the real tradition of storytelling, um, there was still not much else to do. I guess you, you had to provide your own entertainment um, until the 50s or the 60s. There, there no electricity even on the Blasket Island. So storytelling and music and singing would have been um, the equivalent of watching telly on a Sunday night. It's often Sunday night, I think, that they do the storytelling. I, I, I always imagine that's when it is. Um, but um, uh, so I, I think it's kind of interesting aspect of that time when the tradition is on the cusp of changing. And, you know, Mihola Gaheen, Peg's son, also became a great storyteller, but he he didn't tell stories to the community. I think he told them mainly to Buhalquist and to other collectors and so on. But he became a writer. I mean, he, he, he was a, a poet and he wrote novels and collection of short stories and memoirs and so on. That in the next generation, that transition from uh, the oral narrative community to the literary community had already happened um, in, 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 in the Gaeltacht in Kerry. Um, so, uh, so, so I think what you get at, in Peg's stage is the tradition is still alive, but it is being fanned up and nurtured uh, to an extent, mm -hmm. maybe to a great extent, by... Uh, by the collectors and by the interest that the stone cherry, the outsiders, are showing in, in the culture. Um, I think that's an interesting part of it. It's a complex issue now. Should you just leave everything alone to be natural? Or do you come in and what do you do to it? But I think it's beneficial in the context, in the case of the Blasket Island. Yeah. Like in, in, in when Peg was, let's say, in her prime, uh, let's say in the 30s, 40s and so on, the young people on the island, uh, storytelling had kind of gone in as an entertainment, had fallen down to the level of children. And the, the young boys, anyway, I know from people who told me who were uh, young men on the island at that time, that they wouldn't dream of going listening to these mm. stories, like uh -huh. that this was something for children only. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that you can see how that its tradition is 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 falling in down in esteem, as it were. Mm. Storytelling is something for, for kids. Mm. Uh, but of course, it continues. Yeah. Um, so we had planned it. Um, Ian, do you mind playing? There's a, we have a piece of audio, and it's actually, it's it's, Peg is talking about storytelling on the basket. So she's not telling a story as such. This is an interview 
uh, much later on with Porgo Sukru and Shawak and Shauna Sulivan from the Folklore Commission, and they're, they're talking about the context in which things were occurring. It should be Aaronirth and Skeliirth, number 10. And if, and if you can stop playing it after like a minute and 42 seconds, because it goes on for seven minutes. And also, if. No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I have a, a, a translation of that here for, for people who don't speak Irish. Porogashukhu says to Pega, how did you spend the time at night, in the winter nights? And she replies, well, the young people who were grown up used to be in a particular house. They had particular houses throughout the village where they enjoyed themselves, having their own fun, as you might say. The old people then used to visit together. And then Chowak says, what did the adults, the married folk, do when they got together? The married folk, the young people who were not married, used to dance and sing and have fun and banter. And then Chowak goes on, was there storytelling and singing? Yes, in the houses where the adults were. On certain nights of the week and of the year, there was always singing and fun in some house. And Shawak asks, were certain houses chosen for this entertainment? It went from house to house. Yes, a particular house would be chosen as there were no big, fine, spacious houses on the island. Were there any good storytellers on the island who told the old tales in your time? No, there was only one storyteller who was able to tell any of those Fenian stories. My own husband, Paul Gokohim, he was wonderful. And where did he get his stories? He got them from the Idrahach people, O'Shea's from Idrahach used to come to the island in those days fishing lobster. So it gives, I suppose, a certain, um, I suppose, a sense of the, of the state of tradition, which in a way maybe has gone into a state of kind of anachronistic decline in a way, and it's, and it's kind of ebbing away in a certain sense. And yet it was providing a huge amount of inspiration for the likes of the, the Folklore Commission and visiting scholars from abroad uh, who saw, I suppose, the last fragments of a living tradition and, and the last kind of, I suppose, expressions of the Gaelic storyteller in, yeah. in that context. Well, the last fragments, I mean, they came because um, the tradition was so much richer <laughs> um, mm. in 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 Corcoghina and uh, in in Dunkreen and other places as well as the Blasket Island. Um, it, I'm not sure if. And, you know, that was still the case um, in the late 1950s when Delargy told Boo Alpust to go to Kerry um, because he was, uh, you know, interested in folklore in the context of Europe and that um, Ireland was the place where you could mm -hmm. still um, hear the, 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 the stories um, 
the international tales that had been known all over the the continent um, that they that, that they were still being told. So I I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure if it was. I wouldn't no, say it was on its last legs. It, it, it and and yeah. and it, it's interesting that she says in this interview. Yeah, she she because Patsy Flint is kind of shadowy figure mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. the story of Peg, but she did learn a lot of stories from him from mm-hmm. her husband, and then uh, the other great source uh, was was her was her father um she she heard them from many other people but um from those two sources i don't think it's entirely true that there were no storytellers governor the kennedy was telling stories Uh, i mean she's in the western uh island uh, and so on so it may be she does say fenian tales um there was a certain um I think they were the kind of, you know, these stories. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So, and women were not allowed to tell them, but there's an interesting little scene in the Western Island where Gubnett is telling a version of Cinderella and a man comes in and says, we wouldn't have called that a story at all yeah. in our day. <laughs> and and um, Boo writes somewhere, Michal, there there are um, five or six versions of Cinderella type stories, very good ones too, with called different things, Maureen and so on, by Peg. But Michal O'Grehin refused to tell any of those. Mm. He wouldn't tell. He said, they're too Cinderella y. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, like I I think in Peg's reply that there were no great storytellers. I don't know what she's trying to <laughs> downplay the opposition or what. Yeah. <laughs> the queen of Irish uh, storytelling. And, and uh, like I know that storytelling continued as entertainment for adults right into the 50s, I know. Uh, uh, there were certain villages uh, in, in, in my own area where uh, going to the national school, the young boys from, from, from those villages would come in and tell us about the great night they had listening to the stories. Uh, and it, it would very frequently have been either uh, a heroic tale or Skelfianichta, and as Ailey said, sort of the, 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 the Fenian tales, this was really sort of seen or hurling storytelling. This was... The, the 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 high point of, of of the art of storytelling was displayed in the in in the Fenian day. Mm. And who then who who were the collectors who first noted or, or kind of looked to the basket as a special case, as it were, for senior earning and other pursuits? Like who were the first um, scholars who, who visited her? Yeah, well, uh, there was a, a school of Irish learning established in Dublin in 1908, sort of. Uh, and scholars, linguists from other countries, used to come and study old Irish, basically, at this, at this, uh, at, at this, uh, during summer course. And uh, 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 the director Osborne Bergen, he had a strong sort of inclination towards Monster Irish and Blasket Island, and he urged his students sort of to to go to the Blaskets. And this is how Robin Flower, for instance, ended up going to the Blaskets. Uh, in maybe around 1910 or something like that. Uh, and subsequently then uh, he uh, urged Kenneth Jackson to come and this sort of set the trend, as it were. Mm. Uh, like the, the uh, um, Blasket Island was, was, was really uh, very lucky in the kind of tourism that developed <laughs> in it, that it was not at all destructive of the, the local culture. In fact, it, it was very helpful in reinforcing it and in giving the local people to understand that their way of living and their way of talking and so on was worthwhile and good and, and you know, was, was really uh, something that people in Dublin and England and elsewhere sort of admired. So it, it had a beneficial effect like that. Mm. Yeah, it, it, I agree entirely. <clears throat> I think it was um, the... the the respect that the um, people of the Blasket Island and of the Gaeltacht in Kerry got for their own culture and their language and so on was was so nurtured and inspired by these visitors. Mm. But the Blasket um, phenomenon, yeah, it begins in the early 1900s. Singh went in 1905, I think. Mm. He could have met Peg; she was there, but yeah. um, he only st- he was only there for a night or two, and then. Um, 
Kalmar Strander, the Norwegian, uh, he, that's an interesting story. He was a great uh, a linguist and more than a folklorist, I think, was he a folklorist as well? But um, he was also um, an athlete and he was actually on the Norwegian pole vaulting team for the Olympics in 1907. I think the Olympics were in London in 1907. Um, but instead of going to the Olympics, he decided, I will go to the Blasket <laughs> and learn Irish, which he did. Um, he, he spent three months there. And um, at the beginning, he didn't know, uh, he says he didn't really know any Irish much. Um, but um, at the end of the three months, he was uh, leafa galore. He was able to express himself well. Did he, he pole vault over the houses? He, he pole vaulted over the mosque. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes. That's, he, was, he, was, he was obviously a character. And then, um, you know, Carl, well, many people visited the Blaskets. Um, I think uh, an interesting character who had an influence um, was somebody called George Chambers, very mysterious because um, he went in, I think, 1931, just once, and he befriended, uh, he became friendly with a Blasket Island girl called Eilish Nihulavon. Um, I've just been, and in 1978, she wrote to him then, she wrote letters to this George Chambers. He lived in London for about 20 years. Um, she, she, she married uh, one of the O'Crihans and moved Sean to Maria Sean O'Crihan. Um, I was hunting for her. Uh, she was born in 1911. She was a beautiful girl. She, you'll see photographs of her in the exhibition. Um, but she... Um, she, she, she. I couldn't find out anything about George Chambers. Like, who, who was he? Um, he, all we know in the books was that he lived in London. But today, somebody sent me an email, and he's found out. My colleague, old friend, and colleague Jerry Long in the National Library, George Chambers, was the sales manager for a company that manufactured Christmas crackers. <laughs> like he and he, what was he doing on the great bus? Heard it here first. <laughs> but but he so so all kinds of people went apart from the you know the 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 ones the the great the great the great uh, learned people. Yeah. Um, but uh, over a dozen people co collect, collected uh, stories from Peg Sayers mm. over the years um, um, and, and how many others visited her and talked to her. Mm. So um, there'd be information uh, about a, a good selection of them in the Molly exhibition that's going to open uh, next week here. Mm. And then, uh, sorry, sorry just, just uh, Peg's relationship with the, the scholarly visitors, let's say, is is interesting. I like to think of her as sort of a foster mother to uh, the study of of, of uh, Irish studies and 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 folk, folklore studies, in that she influenced uh, very much Robin Flower. Like he saw from her the. The, the effect of a story uh, which could have been told in, in, in medieval times, well told, and how it sort of would, would, would make an impression on, on people. And with Kenneth Jackson again, like he, he dedicated uh, his, his uh, perhaps one of his best known books to Peg Sayers, sort of uh, uh, acknowledging the contribution that his uh, contact with her had made right. to his to his scholarship, so it 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 isn't sort of entirely I think inappropriate to view her something as as as, as a shady let's say um, foster mother or, or to, to, to Irish learning and and uh, folklore studies. Didn't she write to Kenneth Jackson the, the letters? We have them, you know, see three letters, and one of them says that she has a mother's love and respect. That's for, right. And, yeah. And and he he wouldn't. He couldn't. There's a letter from him later. I think is it taboo, saying that he couldn't go back to the basket. He he didn't want to go back to the basket to spoil the perfect memory he had at that time with her. And we we have photographs of of, of them uh, on the island laughing away. You can see. Yeah. That. Yeah. She got on. She she obviously loved them. You know. Yeah. I mean, she loved the company. The company and the 
attention and you know she she was they were calling her the queen of storytellers mm -hmm. and the, the queen of the blasket and mm -hmm. um she sparkled up Reed Mahan um who uh, was uh, worked uh, as an archivist in the Irish Folklore Commission and the Department of Irish Folklore for many years um is a little bit admiring, but a little bit acerbic about Peg. <laughs> she writes about her in Bree's memoir, which is called The Grass Grows oh, Green. Green grass yeah, grass. yeah, it's very good. Damn. Yeah, and her account of her meeting with Peg is, um, you know, I think she's, yeah, she, she says Peg sparkled up and flirted with the men. She loved mm -hmm. that. And she was polite, but not all that. You know, in, that interested in breed man <laughs> in, in in women, but she yeah. does say uh, she has. I just read this fantastic description uh, breed man has of her. She met her. She was in her seventies, an old woman with a face scarcely lined, dark, expressive eyes and hands, and a wonderful voice. Listening to her, I thought that in another place or time she might have made her name as a great actress. In looks, gesture, and timbre of voice, she reminded me of um, Siobhan McKenna, our own Sarah Bernhardt. So, and I, I think that's quite an insightful, you know, Peg had the talents of a creative writer, but also of an actor, which is perhaps what a storyteller has to have. You have to have that combination. Uh, yeah. The flirtatious side of, of Peg comes out in a, a letter she addressed to a student, a law student who was on the Blaskets and sort of visited with Peg, I'm sure daily, uh, improving his Irish. And when she goes, when he goes back to Dublin, he must have given her some present or something. And she writes a letter and she addressed the letter. On Bochel Allen, <laughs> 39 Kenilworth Square. <laughs> so I think you can read into that. <laughs> um, I suppose uh, she, she kind of she she inspired and impacted on um, not just not just international kind of scholars and collectors of folklore, but also on, on Irish writers and poets and so on. There's another description from the introduction to Laird the Cock here. I want to read. And it's, uh, it's Sean Maria Dawn's uh, uh, words regarding her. And it says here, this is a rendering of how the poet describes Peg sitting in her bed in Dingle Hospital, very much as she was when Sean McRaymon made his last recordings of her. And this is Sean Maria Dawn's description of her. He says, there she would be sitting up in the bed with a large shining cross on her bosom, such as a clergyman might wear. Despite being bedridden for such a long time, her heart seems to be as light as a starling, as she used to say herself. Although blind, she was always the brightest in any company. There was a certain radiance in her face as she spoke to you, so that you were unaware of the lack of light in her eyes. Her face spoke to you, just as sighted people speak to you with their eyes. What would the face be saying? That it was Peg Sayers herself, and not anybody else who was talking to you. That old Peg warmly welcomed you because you were one of her own. That you were both of a noble race, that you, were, that you both were aware of the nobility of the Irish language, that you understood the generosity, the roguery, the mystery, and the sorrow of this world better than anyone else, that your meeting with her here was a matter of universal joy. Her face said that and much more. So I suppose there's a description of her. There are many different descriptions of the, the impact she seems to have on, uh, on, on those who, who are in her company and who see her sharing stories story yeah. with them. Sean Arredan has a very good uh, description of, uh, he describes Peg's mind as a canvas, a naivog, old prince in a canvas boat in which we navigate the sea of our tradition. Mm -hmm. That she was so, 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 so knowledgeable in it that she can steer us through it. Yeah. So, how do you think that she, we should maybe view her today? I mean, you know, we've covered different angles of her, of her artistry, but I think maybe the, the view the kind of eye-rolling meme that, that associate, people would have associated with her in years past, I think, is, is diminishing now. I think people are, are more open to kind of a reappraisal of her. But is there any way, how, how should we think of her today? Too? Well, more realistically, I think, 
like she has got a, a bad press generally, I think, um, or at least the bad press has been given white publicity. Mm. Uh, uh, like she was not at all a puritanical woman. She was fun-loving. And uh, like uh, her um, sort of some of her stories, for instance, are rather body. And her son uh, Michal was frequently uh, giving out to her for using certain phrases and expressions that she she be algarvikage or Elisa, and uh, um, she she had a great sense of humour. Like it, it bubbles through her, her, her storytelling. For instance, in that, that book right there, there are 21 instances in, 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 in the telling of the stories in, the, in which Peg laughs and, and, and gets the listeners to laugh with her. Like. Mm. So she had a great sense of humor. Hers was one of the houses the children used to come to, to play. She loved music and the music was played in her house. And uh, uh, that is one sort of way in which I think we can uh, look at Peg today. In other words, see her as a more rounded person. Certainly she was a woman who had suffered a lot. Certainly she is a woman who has shown us what the traditional attitudes to uh, harsh fate is and how she was enabled to deal with this. But uh, that shouldn't lead us to think that she was sort of a gloomy, depressed kind of a person. Mm. There was another side to her. Well, I mean, I would really want us um, to um, see her as uh, a great artist and mm. that that's really what yeah. she was um, uh, in the field of storytelling. Um, I don't know how her reputation, how, how we can achieve that recognition for her. Now, there's no problem among folklorists and you know scholars and students of oral narrative and folk tales, Peg is going to be essential for them. Um, so um, there's 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 no issue about the respect that she has in that niche community. I mean, in the wider world of Ireland, where she has been denigrated for uh, about three or four decades because of, um, for, for all kinds of complex reasons, as we know, we don't have to go into them. I mean, she's, this whole mixture of emotions going on in the, the anti-peg um, trope that has taken legs and is just out there, but it, 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 may, be, um, it may be getting weaker now. Um, so, I mean, the task of um, kind of re-educating the Irish public about PEG, I, the, I think um, certain uh, initiatives are going to make a difference and that this, uh, the exhibition in Mali is going to be one of them and this podcast and the books that Porgo Haley and Boo have um, brought out uh, over the, uh, the Larry Lecoq and Neil Dara Rota, um, which, you know, present some, uh, a, a small selection of Peg stories um, to the public um, in Gaelga and in translation so that they're accessible, um, will will help to, 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 to um, help people to reevaluate her and to kind of um, recognize her for the genius that she was. Um, so um, that's, that's what I hope would be happening to Peg. She deserves to be recognized she deserves to be acknowledged and she deserves to um, be known uh, again now as she was in the early days of the century as um, a really important um, artist. Mm. Yeah, the problem is, I suppose, that the, the, the genres of, of, of art that she uh, was, was master of they're no longer popular. People don't don't listen to international folk tales or we, tales of the supernatural. Yes, we uh, have to find a way um, of 
Yeah, people don't listen to long Fianna tales and fairy tales on Sunday nights. They watch, um, you know, TV drama and Netflix, which will be using plenty of the same tropes and Mm -hmm. ideas that are in the stories and have the same structures. But I think the modern storyteller movement, and we have a storyteller, um, Nuala Hayes, who's part of that revival. And Nuala is working on a PEG project as we speak. And um, we, we, we have to find creative ways of, um, you know, of, of telling the stories in, in a way that makes them interesting and entertaining. Like, you know, to be honest, I love the stories, but that's because I'm kind of analyzing them. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun if you're a researcher and a folklorist, but I think you have to find quite creative ways to kind of get them across as, as entertainments. But there are ways, mm. and the, the new storytellers are finding ways mm-hmm. of doing that. Indoctrinating the public. Ways of re Re-indoctrinating the camps, finally. Um, I want to go back to we'll give the last word to Peg here. Well, not more anyway. When the fun is at its height, it's time to go, runs the Irish proverb. And when visitors went each night, Peg would draw the ashes over the peat embers to preserve the fire till morning, reciting her customary prayer. I preserve the fire as Christ preserves all, Bridget at the two ends of the house and Mary at the, in the center. The three angels and the three apostles who are highest in the kingdom of grace guarding this house and its contents until day. It's hard to be growing old, said Peg, when I said goodbye to her in Dingle. But, she added with a grin, I'll be talking after my death, my good gentleman. So she will, for as the proverb says, this bruin a part, not glory in the name, this bruin a fuckle, not ticket and tail. A tune is more lasting than the song of the birds, and a word more lasting than the wealth of the world. So um, our story here is coming to a close, um, but before, we finish up, I'd like to, to give uh, special thanks to Simon and Ben and Katie here at Molly for their hospitality and kindness in inviting us to record the podcast here and for looking after us all so well. Um, and indeed, special thanks is due to yourselves for being with us here this evening. Um, and finally, I'd like if you give a round of applause, please, to thank our guests for all that they've shared with us this evening. Please thank uh, Eilish and Porik. <laughs>